What an utter abomination. Disgusting electoral system. So, electoral nerds out there, I'm sure you'll agree with me, at-large, single, multi-member first-past-the-post constituencies, utter chaos, utterly terribly designed. Maybe it just really fits with their political culture there, UN. Their political culture's wrong. Um, <laughs> clearly, that's a trigger for me. Welcome to the Europlex podcast. I'm Ewan Healy, and with me, of course, is my fantastic friend, Gabriel Hedengren. Gabriel, how are you doing today? I'm good, thanks, Ewan. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Excited to be looking through all what has been a massive week of news, or massive couple of weeks of news, and looking forward to sharing it with all of you guys. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of chaos, a lot of elections, um, ups and downs. So yeah, we can't complain of it being a dry news week absolutely not and in this episode we've got coming up later an interview with our very own belgian correspondent philip van lanen about the newly formed belgian government only a mere 494 days after the elections and also podcast regular matthew nicholson is going to be with us later on to bring us another installment of his fantastic history corner so make sure you get a nice warm cup of tea ready to hear about a historic election Oh, I love those. Um, and stick around also uh, for a fascinating interview uh, we did with a real-life pirate, uh, so Czech parliamentarian and vice chair of the Czech Pirate Party, Olga Ristorova, who sneaked out from the ongoing interpolation in the country's chamber of deputies to speak to us about her party's recent electoral success. First, however, um, let's do our news roundup, Ewan. Yes, and to start off, we take you to the European Council, where following the previous postponement of the previous summit, EU leaders met for a socially distanced council meeting in Brussels this week. Discussions were largely focused on sanctions towards Belarusian President Lukashenko and Turkish President Erdogan. Both Greece and Cyprus are currently in grievance with Turkey over exploratory drilling taking place in the eastern Mediterranean. Some EU leaders are, however, anxious to not anger Turkey, as it could put relationships over military and migrant issues at risk. After heated negotiations and multiple drafts, the European Council agreed on a statement condemning Turkey, which satisfied all parties, Greece and Cyprus included. Discussions over this issue are one of the reasons that the EU's response to President Lukashenko's uh, stealing of the election back in August has been so lacklustre. But following this week's European Council meeting, some restrictive measures have been imposed towards 40 individuals that have played a part in the election misconduct in Belarus and the violent response towards peaceful protesters. Another issue discussed was EU-China relations as ever, as well as the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, the poisoning of Alexei Navalny, the plans for the single market, COVID-19, MFF negotiations, and of course, EU-UK relations which is going to be a big topic at the next meeting scheduled for the 15th and 16th of October, as well as climate change and relations with Africa. Casual conversations about everyday topics, you <laughs> <laughs> In other news, just as we were about to record, the European Parliament approved the appointment of Marriott McGuinness as the new Irish European Commissioner. And the beefing up of uh, Executive Vice President Valdis Dombrovskis' portfolio with the area of trade. 
Our listeners definitely remember that Ireland lost the trade portfolio when former Commissioner Phil Hogan resigned over a scandal combining golf and coronavirus restrictions, and that McGuinness will be Commissioner in charge of financial services and capital markets, which used to be part of Dombrovsky's job. So a bit of switcheroo there. Thus, balance is restored and also closer to a gender balance in the commission, as this change has resulted in there now being 13 female commissioners to 14 men. Uh, McGuinness was approved with 583 in favour, 75 against, and 37 abstentions. And Dobrovsky's change of portfolio was approved by 515 in favour, 110 against, and 70 abstentions. While we are on EU political issues, one of the EU's most powerful politicians, Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, had to self-isolate this week. This came after she attended a meeting with Antonio Lobo Xavier, who's a Portuguese lawyer and advisor uh, with the Portuguese president and a previous member of CDSPP, which is um, a center-right uh, party in Portugal affiliated with the European People's Party. Um, Xavier um, ha- has since been diagnosed with the virus. At the time of the recording, however, uh, von der Leyen is not known to have experienced any symptoms and she's also tested negative for COVID-19. Woohoo! Um, many Portuguese politicians who came in contact with Xavier also do not appear to have experienced any symptoms, uh, but have also had to self-isolate. So this includes central-left prime minister um, and representative in the European Council, uh, Mr. Antonio Costa, the president of the Republic, Marcelo Rebelo de Sousa, and president of the Assembly of the Republic, Eduardo Ferro Rodriguez, and Francisco Lucha as well, who's the previous leader of the left-wing party, BE. Um, Hopefully by the time you hear this, um, our dear Ursula and the rest of the people I've just listed who came into contact um, with uh, Xavier will no longer have a reason to self-isolate. So let's hope, you know. And if you're listening, Ursula, get well soon. I'm sure you do listen. I'm sure. (laughs) And from the EU, we now go to France, where last time in the previous episode, you'll remember we brought you news of first round by-elections to the French National Parliament. So naturally, it's time for the second round of those elections. And of the six seats contested, five were held by the incumbent party in each seat, with just one seat changing hands, which was the 11th district of Yvelines, swapping from liberal La République en Marche to centre-right Les Républicains. Three green candidates, one centre-left Génération candidate, one right-wing Rassemblement National candidate, and one independent were defeated in the final round of these elections. Keeping on with the electoral news, on Friday and Saturday last week, Czechs went to the polls to elect the members of the regional assemblies as well as the third of its Senate. Uh, Regional elections were held in all of its 13 regions with the exception of the capital. Um, The election was won by the ruling ANO party, a member of the Liberal RE group. And by won, we mean they got the plurality of votes, which was uh, 21.8% in this case. Um, 10 out of the 13 regions were won by them and they got 178 seats in total, which is an increase of two in comparison to 2016. Uh, so they're steady at the top of Czech politics. Um, so while Anna won the election, it is likely that it will struggle to find coalition partners in at least four or five of the regions. Uh, Pirati, um, which is a pirate party affiliated to um, the Green EFA group in the European Parliament, finished second with 12% of the vote, um, which was uh, quite a big increase for them of 10.3 percentage points, uh, which left them with 90 nine seats, um, an increase of 94 in comparison to the previous election. Liberal Conservative ODS, a member of the ECR group uh, in the EU Parliament, ended up in third place with 7%. However, it uh, formed regional level coalitions in, in some of the regions. 
the biggest losers of the selections were quite clearly at CSSD, the center-left S&D-affiliated party, and the left-wing KSCM, um, who is part of the left um, group. Um, in 2016, CSSD finished second with 15.3 of the vote, but now it ended up in seventh place with just 4.9%, losing 88 seats of its 125. Um, KSCM, the third largest party in 2016, ended up at 10.6%, eighth place, 4.8% of the vote, so very disappointing for them too. Um, some checks have also headed to the polls for the first round of the Senate elections, as a third of the Senate is elected every two years on a rolling basis. Similarly to the regional election, the center-left CSSD suffered heavy losses, failing to defend seven out of its ten seats. So if CSSD does not manage to defend at least two of the seats in the second round, they would no longer hold enough seats to maintain their own political group in the upper chamber. Um, ouch. Um, at the beginning of the 2010s, however, uh, CSSD dominated the upper chamber, completely holding an absolute majority um, for five years, 2010 to 2014. Um, the governing Anno uh, lost one seat in this first round, although it can pick up some new ones in the second round still as eight of their candidates um, advanced. Um, so far, the main winners of the Senate election are the Liberal Conservative ODS and the center-right Stan, um, which is also a member of the European People's Party group. 10 candidates of the ODS and 10 candidates of Stan advanced to the second round. Um, Stan also won one seat in the first round. Centrite KDU CSL, another member of the European People's Party group, did well too, as seven of their candidates advanced to the second round. Um, so you could say that it was a, a failure of the Czech left um, and um, you know minor to major advances um, on the rest of the spectrum. Um, later on in the episode, um, I'll be speaking to one of the co-chairs of the Czech Pirate Party. Um, so listen on for that. Definitely stick around for that. I'm really looking forward to hearing it. But first, we've got more electoral news. Yay. We bring you what might be the smallest election happening in 2020 in Europe as polls open for 31,000 registered voters in Guernsey on the 7th of October. This will be the first election held in the British Crown dependency since the successful referendum in 2018 brought about a dramatic change to the island's electoral system, merging Guernsey's seven constituencies into one single at-large constituency covering the entire island. Every voter in Guernsey will see a ballot paper with, embrace yourself for this, 119 candidates on which they have the opportunity to vote for up to 38 of them. 38 candidates! One ballot paper. Too much. Definitely too much. The 38 candidates with the most votes will then proceed to being elected to the regional parliament using a simple first-past-the-post system. What an utter abomination. Disgusting electoral system. So, electoral nerds out there, I'm sure you'll agree with me, at-large, single, multi-member first-past-the-post constituencies, utter chaos, utterly terribly designed. Clearly, that's a trigger for me. Maybe it just really fits with their political culture there, UN. Their political culture's wrong. Um... <laughs> it's fascinating in any case. It'd be interesting to speak to whoever came up with, with the system. Yeah, have some strong words. Strong words with whoever invented the system. As well as navigating the oh, hideous electoral system, 
voters will have the opportunity to vote for candidates from a whopping three political parties, which are challenging Guernsey's tradition of non-partisan government. These include the Guernsey Partnership of Independence, the Alliance Party Guernsey, and the recently formed centre-right Guernsey Party. As only one third of the candidates belong to a party, however, it is incredibly likely that there will be a lot of independence in the next parliament. Chances are that by the time you're listening to this, the elections will have already taken place. So if you can't wait for our next episode to find out who won, check our coverage on social media. Speaking of elections that may have happened by the time you're listening to this, voters in the unrecognized state of Northern Cyprus will head to the polls to elect a new president um, this coming Sunday on 11th of October. The latest polls show that the second round will most likely be contested between center-left federalist incumbent, uh, the Turkish Cypriot leader Mustafa Akinci, and um, the current prime minister Ersin Tatar, who is skeptical towards a federal solution um, for Cyprus, um, more in line with the Turkish government's approach. That new solution model should be discussed um, Central-left pro-solution Tufan Erhurman is third at a close distance from, from the two frontrunners. Um, the latest poll uh, we have at hand predicted Akinci losing in the second round on October 18th, both uh, if he'd meet Tatar or Erhurman. However, other polls have shown Akinci winning in the second round too, so it's really a mixed picture. Um, Cypriot analysts point out that this might be because some polls do not publicize the percentage of undecided voters. Um, or because respondents are less willing to openly state they will vote for Akinci, who's um, in open conflict with uh, Turkish President Erdogan. Meanwhile, the campaign heats up with Tatar having gone on television on Tuesday uh, to announce the partial opening of a beach in what's a ghost city known as Famagusta. Um, this is in coordination with Turkey in a move seen as an open attempt by the Turkish government in Ankara to boost Tatar's prospects in these elections. With the election authorities, on the other hand, are saying that such actions are obvious efforts by Turkey to favour this one specific candidate. In a last-minute twist to all this, Tatar's ghost city move has actually led to the centre-right HP um, pulling out from the ruling coalition. Um, so HP is led by the unrecognized North's foreign minister, who is also a candidate for Sunday's election, um, known as Kudret Ozersay. Um, what all this could mean is that a snap legislative election could also be happening soon, a bit before uh, May's legislative election in the Republic of Cyprus. So a lot of things to keep in mind <laughs> there. So do follow us for, for more context at this develop. Um, all of this is, of course, quite significant insofar as to how it will affect the possibility of renewed peace talks on the island uh, and by extension, uh, what will happen with EU-Turkish relations. Um, so something interesting to follow um, in the coming months. Moving away briefly from electoral news, we now go to Catalonia and Spain, where the regional president, Kim Torre, of the pro-independence Together for Catalonia party has been removed from office by the Spanish Supreme Court after they upheld a decision to ban him from public office for 18 months. Torre was found guilty for refusing a court order last year to remove a banner in a public building which called for the release of political prisoners uh, which is in violation of Spanish electoral law. His ousting sparked protests in Barcelona, coinciding with the third anniversary of the disputed independence referendum in 2017. Rather than elect a new regional president, Catalonia's pro-independence coalition will seek snap elections to the regional parliament, most likely on the 14th of February next year. According to recent polls, pro-independence parties will still hold a majority in the new parliament. 
And from the west end of our lovely continent, we now go to the uh, very eastern part of it. Um, this week, the frozen armed conflict in the Karabakh region of uh, southern Caucasus between Armenia and Azerbaijan reignited. In one of the biggest flare-ups since the Russian-mediated ceasefire of 1994, Armenia and the self-declared Republic of Artsakh have come to blows with Azerbaijan, who claims the breakaway Karabakh region as its own de jure territory. This war has its roots in the dissolution of the Soviet Union, as the region broke away from Azerbaijan in an internationally unrecognized referendum. Um, while there have been spates of fighting since the peace agreement in 1994, this is perhaps the most vigorous thus far, lasting longer than the so-called April War of 2016 that you might remember. Um, Azerbaijan is internationally backed by Turkey, who actively supports its claims on the region, uh, while global powers like Russia, France, and the US have all called for a ceasefire and a negotiated settlement between the two countries. NATO has called on President Erdogan of Turkey to support a ceasefire, uh, but no action has been taken so far. Uh, currently, no UN state, not even Armenia actually, recognizes Artsakh, although Armenia openly supports the breakaway region. Finally, and incredible 18 months ago, Belgians went to elect all 150 seats in their national parliament. 76 seats were needed for a majority. The largest party got just 25. After 494 days of negotiation, Belgium finally has a governing coalition. They said it was impossible. Many wondered if Belgium would even ever be able to form a government again. But here we are. And it actually includes quite a few firsts, including a first for trans rights as Petra de Souta, a member of the Green Party, is now Europe's first ever transgender minister. She will also serve as the deputy prime minister as well. And then a more regular feature to followers of European politics, it's time for On They Related, where European Council President Charles Michel, his brother, Mathieu Michel, who is a member of the Francophone Liberal MR party, is the new state secretary for the digital agenda. You'll remember that Charles Michel was a Prime Minister of Belgium himself a few years ago. But how did we get here? If only we had some sort of expert correspondent to help us out. So here to explain everything that happens in Belgium is Europolex Belgium correspondent, Philip van Lanen. Philip, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast. So let's start for our listeners with a little bit of Belgium 101. Belgium as a nation is split into two distinct language groups, the French-speaking and the Dutch-speaking groups. And now the former French group is to the south on the French border and, and the latter to the north on the Dutch border. It's around this divide that the electoral and governmental system has sort of been designed. Can you explain briefly for our listeners what that looks like on the ground? Yeah, so in principle, you have 11 constituencies. Uh, five of them are Flemish on the north and five of them are the south, Wallonia, and Brussels is also one of the constituencies. And uh, the uh, division between the two groups is more or less 60% uh, Flemish and 40% French speaking. And the parties are organized along these lines too. So you have Flemish parties and you have French speaking parties, except for uh, the far left uh, PPB, PVDA, which is actually one single party across the whole of Belgium. And there are some uh, variations to this. For example, Ecolo and Groen, the environmentalists, there are one fraction in the uh, national chamber, but they are two separate parties on the ground. 
can these language divides go most of the way to explain why it's taken 494 days to form a government? Were there other issues at play, or is it the language barrier that's been, or the, the two distinct language groups that's been the biggest barrier in bringing a Belgian government together? I think the answer to that is yes and no. Um, yes, because uh, there is, of course, a, a big difference between how the vote is voted in Flanders and how they voted in the rest of the country. Uh, at the same time, there is also an ideological uh, aspect to this, uh, whether the next government should have been uh, more to the left or more to the right. So there is a, it's not just a linguistic uh, divide, it, there is also an ideological divide. Uh, you see that, for example, in Flanders, uh, where the new government doesn't have a, a majority, uh, yet it has almost a majority. And uh, if you would have included the far left uh, PVNA, uh, you would actually have majority over there. So it's it's not just a linguistic problem, but it's also a linguistic problem. Great. So Alexander de Croo, who's the new Prime Minister of Belgium, um, he's a member of the, the Liberal Open VLD party. He's backed by seven parties in this new coalition agreement, which control 87 seats between them in the 150-seat legislature. How has he managed to pull it off after such a long time of delay and discussion and breakdown? Well, ironically, at the beginning of the negotiations, he said himself in the press that being uh, one of the parties that actually lost at the last election and being actually the seventh party in the chamber, uh, he would refuse to become the prime minister because he would have no way of, of actually being able to lead that government. He would be the uh, subject of the, the other parties that are bigger uh, than his party. And uh, ironically, it, it turned out that he actually became the prime minister at the end. There have been uh, big movements uh, uh, during the negotiations. So there is there was a strong request from the, the Flemish side to at least include the New Vlaams Alliance and VA, uh, and that they would govern together with the French-speaking Parti Socialiste, the Social Democrats from the, from the south. Uh, so that has uh, roughly taken up half of the time trying to build a government around that. And the other half of the time, it has been uh, spent more or less on trying to form a government around what is called a purple-green axis. So that in Belgian terms, that means uh, the liberals and social democrats with the blue, which is a traditional uh, color for the liberals, and red combined into purple together with the environmentalists. And that coalition actually had a majority right after the election of one seat in the chamber, which is not very comfortable, but at least it's a majority, but they lost one seat because somebody from Parti Socialist had to be removed out of the party. So that complicated things. So in the end, the Flemish Christian Democrats joined so that uh, the actual government now includes seven parties, not just the six from the Purple Coalition. One other complicating matter was that the French-speaking Christian Democrats, the Centre Democrat Humanist, uh, with five seats, they refused to enter a government. So they said after the election that they had lost so much that they wouldn't want to join. And that, that makes it, of course, difficult to, to, to find a coalition with the 
with the majority if you have to exclude both Flaudsbelang and PTD PVDA, and if smaller parties like the CDH with the Christian Democrats doesn't, don't want to join. So that, that's very complicated. How it turned out that uh, Alexander de Croix became the prime minister is uh, a lot of a story too, uh, because there was actually a fight, or should I say more like a competition between Alexander de Croix on one side and Paul Magnette, the president of the Parti Socialiste on the other side. And they were actually the main formateurs, as they called in Belgium for the last uh, two weeks. Uh, and according to Paul Magnet, the president of the PS, uh, he made he says that he made a decision only at the during the last days that uh, Alexander de Croix should become the prime minister, and that was the best choice. You mentioned uh, the Christian Democrats coming to join this coalition to be part of the coalition. They are the only centre-right party in what is a largely liberal and left-wing party uh, with the Greens as well. What are the ideological or the political priorities going to be for the party as they try and you know, manage a country that hasn't had a government for, for nearly two years? Yeah, so um, every party or every family, so during the negotiations, we, I think the parties were more thinking in terms of families, uh, every family, political family, has its, uh, uh, let's call it, uh, breaking points to join the government. And for the Christian Democrats, it was important that the ethical uh, issues uh, were solved in a good way for them. So they oppose uh, a further uh, relaxation of the legislation uh, related to euthanasia and abortion. Uh, so that's one of the things they have in in their in the agreement that's very important to them. Uh, but every other family also has uh, specific uh, issues that they needed to see in the agreement uh, to, to to join. So, for example, for the liberals, uh, it was very important that there would be no new taxes. Whereas for the socialists, uh, it was important to see that the minimum uh, pensions would be uh, at least. Uh, 1500 euros uh, or move to that uh, level whereas for the uh, the green parties for them it was important that uh, the uh, nuclear power uh, plants would be closed as was agreed in the legislation or actually already 15 years ago and that uh, the, the new government would not uh, change that uh, agreement so every every family has its uh, big issues in uh, the resulting agreement uh, and I think they found sort of a way to put in the, the issues that mattered for them without without coming in conflict with the other parties. Uh, that being said, uh, one of the most uh, uh, used words in the agreement is uh, if and uh, given that, uh, so it, very, very much of the agreement is actually in uh, sort of a conditional tense. So, how how things will evolve during the coming years, and whether we actually will be able to uh, follow up all the issues important to every family, that's one of the big questions. Yeah, definitely. Those issue-based challenges, loads of red lines are going to be a really difficult thing for the new government to sort of negotiate and manage over the coming years before the, the next election in 2024. Um, but another one is that 
as you mentioned earlier, with both uh, Flemish Belang and uh, NVA, the two largest uh, Dutch or Flemish-speaking parliamentary groups not um, in the coalition, that's going to bring additional challenges for the party as well, isn't it? Yeah, so for the Christian Democrats, uh, it was long a breaking point that at least NVA would be part of the coalition. But uh, when they, in the end, saw that it was not possible to make an agreement between NVA and Parti Socialist uh, with enough parties to actually have a majority, because uh, Open Belde refused to join without MR joining into, and NVA didn't want MR to be part of the coalition they would be part of. Uh, they had to turn around and accept that they would join the government without the NVA. What's going to happen in the coming months and years, of course, that the NVA will be uh, attacking CDNV uh, over that, that they uh, turned uh, at, the, at the last moment they're back to the NVA. Uh, at the same time, as they will have to continue to govern together in the Flemish government. So the NVA is governing in the Flemish regional government together with Open BLD, the Liberal Party, and the Christian Democrats of CDNV. So th this is going to bring a lot of tension uh, in the Flemish government, which may propagate back to the federal level too. Pretty simply, will it make it to 2024? Uh, I think they will, uh, but mainly because the, many of the parties will be very afraid to go to the uh, voters before that. Um, we will we have to see how the next uh, opinion polls uh, uh, will look like for the parties that have joined the, the government. Uh, but we already saw uh, some polls indicating that uh, particularly CBNV was doing doing not so good. Um, that's a thing that keeps them in government. Um, we also have to see how the other parties will be doing. Uh, we saw. Uh, uh, a poll in September, where Groen, uh, surprisingly, was not doing good at all. So, yeah, we have to see. I think that they will actually make it until 2024, uh, but more out of fear uh, of meeting the voters again, rather than actually being uh, happy being in government. And on that speculative note um we're going to finish up the interview thank you so much for coming on the podcast philip and i'm sure we'll have you back on again to discuss whatever happens in the next four years of flemish and french-speaking government yes that would be nice thanks very much bye Hey everyone, if you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform it is you're listening to us on. And of course, tell your friends, your fellow political nerds all about us. That would mean the absolute world. We love making this podcast and we love it when you guys love it. So if you've got an idea for a segment, thoughts on a topic that we should be covering, or even if you just want to say hi to us, drop us an email, podcast at europolex.eu. Welcome to the History Corner. This week, we are moving even further back in history to the mid-20th century. On the 8th of October, 1945, one month after the Second World War came to a final conclusion in Asia, and as the United Nations was being established, parliamentary elections were held in Norway. This was the first election to be held in Norway for nine years, 
the longest break since the creation of the Norwegian Parliament in 1814. Norway's minority centre-left Labour government, led by Johan Nigersfeld, was overthrown in 1940 by the German invasion during the Second World War and, along with King Haakon VII, fled to London, where a government in exile was formed. In 1942, the occupying German authorities had established a puppet government led by Vidkun Kvisling, leader of the fascist National Rally. Kvisling remained in this role for three years, collaborating with the occupying German authorities and fighting a growing resistance movement until the war came to an end in 1945. He was subsequently arrested and put on trial for treason and would be executed shortly after the election. Following Norway's liberation from the German occupation, a unity government was appointed consisting of the Labour Party, the centre-right Conservative Party, the Liberal Party and the Communist Party. Having led the government in exile for five years, Johan Nigerswell gave way to Einar Gerhardsen, who also succeeded him as leader of the Labour Party. This interim government ruled the country until elections could be held in October. Gerhardsen had played an active role in the Norwegian resistance to the German occupation and spent four years in concentration camps in both Norway and Germany after his arrest in 1941. He could therefore campaign in the election with an unblemished wartime record. The Labour Party's largest challenger was the Conservative Party, led by Arthur Norley, a representative of Oslo City Council with a long history in Norwegian politics and who had continued to sit in the Norwegian Parliament as a representative of Oslo for the duration of the war. Norway's third party at this time was the Liberal Party, led by Jakob Vermuller, a former delegate to the League of Nations and member of the government in exile. Another party to return from the pre-war era was the Farmers' Party, the forerunner to the modern-day Centre Party, which advocated for greater decentralisation and had helped to prop up the pre-war Labour minority government. A smaller party, the centre-right Christian Democratic Party, also returned to contest the election after winning two seats in 1936. Finally, the 1945 election was also contested by the Communist Party. After winning a handful of seats in the 1920s, the Communist Party had fallen into a decline, achieving only 0.3% of the vote in 1936. But the party's role in the resistance movement had helped it to regain some influence and earned the party representation in the post-war unity government. But despite the political trauma and turmoil that Norway had faced during the preceding nine years, the 1945 election did not mark a dramatic break from the pre-war political trends. The Labour Party retained a wide lead over the other parties, with the Conservative and Liberal parties remaining in second and third place respectively. Although the Labour Party's vote share did fall back slightly to 41%, the party was able to pick up an extra six seats to secure an absolute majority of one seat. Labour benefited from a degree of disproportionality in the way the de Haunt electoral system was applied to electoral districts, giving the party its first majority in Norwegian history, and the first majority for any party since 1915, before the country switched to proportional representation. The Farmers' Party lost ground, falling from 18 to 10 seats due to perceptions that the party had been sympathetic to the collaborationist regime during the war. Uh, and the Conservatives and Liberals also lost seats, the Conservatives shedding a third of their parliamentary delegation. The Christian People's Party, on the other hand, managed to gain an extra six seats. But the largest gains were made by the Communist Party, which won 12% of the vote and 11 seats in the National Parliament in what would become the party's best ever election result, gaining representation for the first time since the 1920s. The rise of the left marked the biggest shift from 1936, as left-wing parties grew their share of the vote from 43% to 53%, a peak that the Norwegian left would never again reach. Geographically, the Labour Party won a plurality of seats in almost every county in Norway, with one notable exception of Vest Agder on the south coast, where the Liberal Party performed well. Although the Labour Party made gains across the country as a whole, the party actually lost ground in the populous southeast, 
mainly to the benefit of the Communist Party. The Conservatives also suffered losses in this region to the Christian Democrats. With its slim majority, the Labour Party did not need any other party's support to form a government. The 1945 election provided the first of four consecutive majorities the Labour Party would go on to win, and inaugurated 18 years of uninterrupted Labour governments, a period known as the golden days of the Labour Party. These governments would expand upon the social policies introduced from the 1930s, such as universal pensions in 1957. Einar Gerhardsen would serve on and off as Prime Minister until 1965, and has subsequently come to be known as Landsfadern, or Father of the Nation, for his role in rebuilding Norway after the war. He would live until 1987, passing away at the age of 90, after living through a further three Labour governments. Europolex is, of course, run by volunteers. We aren't funded by big donors. Everything we do, including this podcast, is only possible with the help of our supporters, just like you. And if we want to do more, which we do, we need your support. So we've started sharing exclusive discussions and special content and votes on what we should contain in our coming podcasts, all on our Patreon channel. Access all of it from as little as one euro a month and support the work of Europolex. So don't miss out on all that good content and support us on Patreon. So as we mentioned, citizens of Czechia went to the polls last weekend to elect representatives to their regional parliaments, as well as a third of their senators uh, to the country's upper house. Um, while the liberal Anno party managed to retain its position um, as the biggest party, the big winner of the elections was the country's pirate party, which scored 12% of the overall vote, um, resulting in a jump of five to 99 seats. And I'm very happy to say that with me now to discuss this is Olga um, Ristorova, um, who's the first vice chairwoman of the party and one of his 22 representatives in the country's Chamber of Deputies. Um, hi, Olga. Hello. Hello. Um, thanks for coming on the podcast. So many of our listeners, just first of all, they won't be very familiar maybe with the Pirate Party political family. Um, so first, could you s- summarize the key political message of your party currently in Czechia and why that has resonated with voters. Yeah, we're a party that is very keen on freedom, transparency, transparent uh, public service, uh, public uh, economy, uh, based on evidence, based on facts. Uh, And we are also a a party with international uh, perspective, comparing things that work elsewhere, and looking uh, for inspiration wherever available. So many people will see pirate parties, you know, as rather activist, eccentric, very online focused. Um, the Czech uh, party that, that you're vice chair of obviously entered parliament uh, quite majestically three years ago. So I'm just curious about your view on that side of um, the pirate movement and how it's been for you and your colleagues to become sort of the biggest sort of institutionalized um, party in the family? How has it been? Yeah, there's always a bit of hard work and lucky coincidence. Uh, I think uh, there was uh, this time for change in my country. Uh, Voters were uh, really looking for a party that would be, um, let's say, fresh uh, in the meaning of not burdened uh, with um, some very shady activity from the early 90s. And uh, we could offer this uh, real change with new people, 
but also we could offer a new program, program for the 21st century, century that is defined by the internet, century that is really uh, focused on education, on information, uh, on things that didn't matter so much uh, in the previous uh, century. Uh, so now um, we are in the parliament, uh, we are the second strongest uh, party in the polls in the Czech Republic. And I think it's because of our factfulness, <laughs> if I may use the name of a famous book, we really try to be um, fact-based and um, we had a great combination of uh, personalities at the beginning of the party, people who could form the structure as well as relationships. That's what I call also a bit of pure luck. Yeah. Um, so you obviously sit um, in the national parliament now, but you also have a background in local politics. Um, and obviously these recent elections were regional. So how, how does that fit in with your strategy um, sort of to enter regional politics? And what are you hoping to, um, to implement on that level of, of government? Um, when it comes to regional politics, it's all about <laughs> very specific things such as this very local um, traffic situation or um, about a specific school that needs funding. The regional level uh, is a, a bridge between uh, individual cities and uh, the parliamentary level. So we are very happy to be able to connect all the levels, uh, to know implications uh, from uh, regulation, uh, to know how it affects uh, those regions. Um, and we will see uh, how uh, also our new ideas exactly in the field of education um, climate care and uh, also uh, nature conservation uh, will show. So part of the DNA of many pirate parties is, you know, new politics not belonging to any sort of traditional ideological families that most of us are so used to um, analyzing and watching. Um, and in these elections you, uh, in Czechia as well, your party, if I'm correct, has contested them without any, you know, uh, firm coalition partners. Um, how come is this um, sort of a strategy going forward as well? And what, what does that mean for your ability to influence um, policymaking? Yeah, we are actually in coalitions in the three biggest cities in my country, in the Czech Republic, because we are ruling Prague. We are in uh, the coalition governing second and third biggest city, Ostrava and Brno. So um, we are very keen on implementing our program and uh, making promises come true when it's possible. But we are not making, uh, you know, uh, coalitions uh, when we don't consider it necessary or strategic. So on this regional level, we did uh, form a coalition in one out of 13 regions where the elections took place, and we did have nearly 20% in that region. So it was a very successful coalition. It's always a bit of uh, strategic thinking, hard work, focusing on the program, on delivering promises, and then on what's possible, what's realistic, what's um, in the context we live in. Yeah. So just to, to finish off, um, how do you view the future of, of pirate parties sort of at a European level in general? Are, are you optimistic? 
I know um, the Pirate Party family works very closely together. Um, so any final thoughts on that? Because we, we are uh, a Europe-level uh, podcast. Yeah, we have our representatives in the European Parliament. There is a German pirate and the Czech uh, Republic has three uh, pirate party representatives. Uh, and this European level shows us uh, that um, there are also others to work together with. More closely, we are part of a uh, faction. And um, the thing is, we exist because we want to implement this program for the 21st. Uh, century, uh, for a century of uh, digitization and IT system, etc., and education. Uh, and in this information age we live in, there can be also, of course, other parties that implement this program. But in our country, this was totally lacking. Uh, so let's see what will happen. Whether other con- uh, other countries will see that their parties, their traditional parties, will adopt uh, these uh, program uh, points or. Uh, whether we'll see the rise of pirate parties elsewhere too. Let's see. Thank you very much um, for your time, Olga. I know I know you've been busy as you are in Parliament today, so very much appreciate uh, you coming on our show. Uh, thank you for asking me these interesting questions, and I hope uh, the situation uh, in my country uh, can be inspiring for others trying to change things for the better. Everybody who wants uh, this uh, should be welcome. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the EuropeLX podcast. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review for us. Also, to stay up to date with European politics, make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, all of them. You can find us also at EuropeLX.eu and at EuropeLX across all those social media platforms, except for Instagram, that is, because there it's at Europe underscore Lex. Thank you very much and see you next time. You've been listening to the EuropeLX podcast hosted by Ewan Healy and Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronus Karimpoulos. The producer and audio engineers were Rafael Peñorios and Leon Lizana. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Matthew Nicholson, Yorgos Kakouris and Guillaume Ferreira de Senda. The music was by Jose Alvarado. And everything we do couldn't be possible without our fantastic supporters on Patreon. Sweet. Sweet.